This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. In the midst of the ongoing political tug-of-war in the U.S. and the ever-present debates around progressive identity politics, we invite you to join us for a down-to-earth look into the great American divide. No matter which side of the aisle you find yourself on, the polarization is hard to ignore. But what happens when someone defies expectations and challenges the status quo? Enter C.J. Pearson, a young black trailblazer trailblazer who made an unexpected journey from the left to the right wing of the political spectrum. In this episode, we're going to delve into the complexities of progressive ideology, the growing influence of identity politics, and the role of African Americans within the Republican Party. With the upcoming elections looming, it's the perfect time to reflect on the fascinating journey of individuals like C.J. Pearson, who challenge the norms and spark conversations about race, ideology, and the future of American politics. C.J. Pearson is a young, up-and-coming, sharp PragerU personality and a frequent guest of Fox News. So grab a seat and get ready for a candid, thought-provoking discussion that navigates the intricate intersection of politics identity and the quest for common ground okay i feel like we gotta we gotta we gotta give it away with this one it's chat gpt we're using chat gpt to make the intros and it's actually way better of a writer for than us like it surprises me it was super complimentary i loved it i love ai let's go we gave it the content we gave it the inspiration yeah um so wait thank you so much for joining thank us. you for having me you're here as part of a group from yeah. Prager U. yeah 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 so this is actually my first time ever in israel wow. and it's been such an incredible experience it's been a very very busy past few days we've been here since monday it's uh sunday now but we have certainly not wasted any time we've we've gone to jerusalem gotten into the old city we've gotten to go to the city of david which was an incredible experience certainly as a you know as a christian to see so much of what's going on there and what happened there um, was a feeling that I don't even know if I have words yet to express about like kind of that feeling that I took away from that. And then we also went to the Dead Sea um, for a little bit of fun there. Um, it's one of the, you know, this is, I don't know how PC you guys' podcast is, but I was joking. Not around at all. With, <laughs> I was joking around with a friend. It's probably the safest place for a black person to swim because there's no chance for us to drown, which, you know, I was <laughs> certainly having a great time in. Um, and so we went to the Dead Sea, did a little float there. And then um, after that, hikes Masada, um, which very hot, very hot, but also to, again, to take in that history was certainly a really, really fun experience. And since then, we've just been in Tel Aviv, which has been also really cool and is a world of its own, especially after going to places like Jerusalem and Masada. You can certainly, certainly see the difference between all of those places. But um, no, there's so much character to this country that I don't think a lot of people ever really realize until they come here so it's been yeah, it's pretty crazy the the new and the old right like yeah. jerusalem and jaffa and the antiquity and then tel aviv yeah. is like this young vibrant city it's yeah. like the silicon uh, valley of the middle east that doesn't sleep it seems it's like until 5 a.m yeah. everything's going yeah. I, I love it personally but yeah it's definitely a lot different than jerusalem we, li- we literally had the the white night on thursday night i don't know if you mm-hmm. guys were around but there was like an all night night without the k 
Knight. Yeah. Without a K. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The 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 white knight is in the night you don't sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh wait. I think we actually. Yeah. So I have a, actually some friends who are doing their birthright trip right now. So I had a friend who um, actually I went to I go to school with uh, at Alabama who is here right now and we went out together for the white night. It was oh, yeah. it was great. So yeah, oh, it was. Cool. There was no sleeping going on for sure. <laughs> I love it. So. You are very young. Yeah, 20 years old. 20 years old. How did you get into commentating? Yeah. You know, for me, it started when I was super young. So I was in the second grade, which is kind of a crazy story to ever repeat back. And especially as I near um, my birthday next month, it'll be almost a decade of having been politically involved. Um, But when I was in the second grade, my teacher, Mrs. Best, had us do a mock election where she wanted us to research the candidates at the time who were running. And at that time, it was then Senator Barack Obama and, of course, um, Senator John McCain. And we were going to have to decide who we wanted to vote for at the end of that particular week. And so I remember actually sitting down watching the presidential debate um, that year on CNN on my grandparents' floor, who I was raised by, uh, and and watching that debate. And obviously, I'm a six or seven year old kid. I have no idea what Iran is, what healthcare reform means, none of these big, wonky words that just are are my day to day life now, which is kind of crazy to think about. But I had no idea what that meant when I was six or seven. Um, But I knew that what they were talking about was really important. I was captivated by the energy of the discussion and how serious. They were talking about these things. And so I was just genuinely curious about what it actually meant. Um, And so later in that week, I actually go and I casted my vote for John McCain in that presidential election. Um, And the reason for me was because, you know, my grandfather, he served 20 years in the military. I grew up all around my home, seeing all of his, you know, American flags, all of his military memorabilia, all of his awards, all of his medals and all these things like our house oozed patriotism. And to me, John McCain also oozed patriotism. And of course, um, with his history as a prisoner of war, it was something that was kind of a no brainer for me, even at six or seven. Um, But, you know, ironic enough, you know, you mentioned identity politics in the intro. I remember coming back home and, and talking to my grandparents, my grandmother in particular, about who I had chosen to vote for in that election. And she looked me in my eye and she said, you must think that you're white. And, you know, (laughs) I had no idea what that meant at the time. I had no idea what identity politics was, what it even meant. I was just simply some, I was just simply someone trying to vote for my values. Right. And so you didn't know what that meant. Meaning did you, do you think you had an understanding of the fact that you were black and that the other kid, some other kids are white? Like, was that, I think, you know, in, 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 And in terms of an observational standpoint, yes, like, yeah, they're black, I'm white. But in terms of that actually meaning anything, no, I, there was definitely nothing I assigned to race at the time or assigned to color. And I definitely didn't believe that the color of my skin should dictate my politics or value system or anything else. You were in second grade. Yeah, I was in second grade. Yeah. (laughs) My biggest concern was Pokemon, Bakugan and whatever was on Cartoon Network at the time. But so, yeah, I was not some socially woke little second grader running around Augusta, Georgia. But um, after that conversation, though, with my grandmother, I was very curious about what she meant and why she said what she said. And so, you know, I wasn't a Republican at the time. I wasn't a Democrat at the time. As you said, I was a second grader with who happened to make a vote. Um, But I did want to figure out where I actually did stand. And I remember watching, you know, uh, Fox News. And I remember watching MSNBC. I remember watching Sean Handy. I remember watching Rachel Maddow. And I wanted to figure out, you know, what I actually did stand for. 
for. And it, it included actually looking at the platforms of every single party, Democrat, Republican, even threw in a few third parties in there. You got the Libertarians, you got the Green Party. And when I actually looked at conservative values and what they meant and what they actually stood for, I realized like these were the values that my grandparents had instilled within me. You know, they were some pretty old fashioned people. I grew up going to church every single Sunday. I grew up um, with the importance of family being emphasized almost every single day. Faith, family, God, all of those things were pretty integral parts of my upbringing. And when I looked at conservatism, it was there was not much daylight between what they had taught me. And so I think that when I say that I didn't know what identity politics was at the time and the reason it was so liberating for me to have got involved when I was so young was because my entire worldview hadn't been tainted by this lie that progressives often spew that, as I said, that the color of your skin should dictate your politics. I, I was like, I was able to look at it really objectively Okay, Republicans believe this, Democrats believe this. This is how I was raised. This is like the type of young man that my grandparents have tried to mold me into. This is, uh, you know, the, the, these are the policies that speak to me and where I'm at in this life. But they also are reminiscent of the values that my grandfather, you know, a guy who I respect a lot, to say the least. Um, this is a guy who loved his country so much so that he served this country for 20 plus years. And so it didn't really make much sense that he would serve a country that was racist. That he wouldn't really, wouldn't make much sense for me that he would serve a country that wasn't great. And so I just didn't think that was true. And, you know, fast forward uh, quite a few years that, you know, has been validated for me. But let me let me ask you, like now at the age of twenty, you said twenty. Twenty, yeah. Twenty. Do you f what what place I guess does race play in in who you are? Do you feel uh, connected to the to your race, and do you feel like? culturally that's part of you yeah you know i will say like I, i'm a black man living in america that is an uh, inescapable fact but i think the difference between those on the left and the right is that i have never uh, viewed my skin color as a disability i've never viewed blackness as an impediment to the life i want to live or the success i want to achieve no absolutely not yeah. but i'm wondering like i, I think we agree like i want to hear more about that but i want to yeah what i'm asking is like, do you, do, is it any part of your cultural identity? Like, do you feel yeah. like there's a part of you that's like, of your cultural identity that's black? Yeah, I think, it, I think there is. Yeah, for sure. I think maybe it's the music I listen to or the food I eat sometimes. Um, I think that's definitely an inescapable part of, of who I am, similar to the way in which, you know, an Italian American loves, you know, good spaghetti and, you know, and, and, and a good Italian wine, which I, I know my friend over here likes. And, um, <laughs> and it's just, it's a part of it. But I think that, Unfortunately, and I think it, you you bring up a very good point, is that there are some people who've allowed blackness to also uh, supersede, in a sense, they're also um, national allegiance. You know, there are people who see themselves as black first or white first or whatever else, and not American first. Um, which I think is what differentiates those people in the black community from those who are conservative and those who are progressive, because I genuinely do see myself as an American first. I believe that, you know, uh, we live in the greatest country in the world and that we have so much freedom and liberty to achieve so much. And I think that, you know, we lived in a time in our country, thankfully I wasn't alive during that time, but there was a time in our country where people were divided um, over something as uncontrollable as the color of their skin. And 
I think that if you're against that, if you are revulsed by that, then why not embrace the thing that we all share, which is our common heritage and, you know, uh, allegiance as American citizens who want to see our country thrive and prosper? Um, why divide when we can unite? And that's a very easy thing to unite around. So back to 10-year-old CJ. Yeah. Uh, because there's a difference between understanding your views, mm -hmm. right? But as a an ex-politician friend of mine once said to me, like, very few people have this germ, mm -hmm. right, of having this itch to speak out and yeah. and you have to tell other people what you think, yeah. what are your opinions and convince them in yeah. your opinions, right? So when did that come to be? You know, I think for me, it was also, uh, you know, kind of a byproduct of how I was raised, probably, you know, I was an only child. And so I was very outspoken in, in, in my home and, and my grandparents listened to me and little did they know what little monster they were creating. But, um, you know, I was I was taken seriously in my home, which I think gave me um, a little bit of courage and conviction to go out and, you know, share my beliefs and thoughts, which would later come on, um, you know, down the road. And so in terms of of my entrance into commentary that actually started when I was 12 years old. And so um, I had just worked on my first campaign in the 2014 midterm elections. I was doing the grunt work of politics. I was knocking on doors, making phone calls in the hot Georgia heat. Um, but I was the type of kid that liked to stay busy. And so one day I remember Rudy Giuliani had made uh, the former mayor of New York city had made some criticisms of uh, president Obama at the time. And the national media derided him as a racist bigot, all the, things and I was like there's not anything really racist about what he said he was just simply making a criticism of President Obama and so I made uh, this YouTube video in response to it I just got this camcorder for Christmas hadn't used it so I roll out of bed and this is February of 2015 and I just go direct to camera and I just absolutely tear into Obama I say you know how can you you know call ISIS the JV team when you know when they're slaughtering Americans where they're killing journalists you know how can you say that you want Americans to succeed seed when you believe that you should be redistributing wealth these th these two things are not congruent to one another they're not true they're not right um even 12 year old cj knew that and so uh, i made that video and the video went viral almost overnight got two million or so views absolutely rock around the internet and you know for the record i had no youtube channel this was my first youtube channel my first video that i ever uploaded it was kind of a little bit of a justin bieber moment famous overnight um which was super wild but and surreal, but I think the thing that gave me the courage to speak out was the fact that, number one, it was how I was raised, but also to see that there were so many people willing to listen um, to, at that time, a 12-year-old kid who just had really strong opinions and was, you know, thankfully a little bit articulate in the way that I was able to present them, but... Um, it was that I think it was validation of the fact that people do care about what the future of America um, have on their minds and what they have to uh, what they have to say, which is, you know, oftentimes when I talk to my peers, you know, the reason they say that they don't want to get involved in politics or the reason they don't want to actually take a stand or be vocal in either direction is because they don't think that they would be taken seriously. And I'm like, you can't talk to me um, and have that conversation because that's the exact opposite. Now, as I've gotten older and I'm 20 years old now do I ever wonder why people were listening to a 12 year old boy? Yes, I do. But 
I, I am grateful for it because I wouldn't be where I am now if they hadn't. But I do think that people do want to hear about what the next generation of leaders, uh, not only here in America, but across the world have to say. Um, it's, I think, why you see the infatuation with people like Malala here in the Middle East and, you know, so many, um, so many other places, because it's just like, this is the world that we're going to have to inherit one day. Um, so we might as well all be vocal and have a stake in the direction that our country and our world is heading as a whole. Um, and that's always been my mindset because at the end of the day, um, you know, I can put my head in the sand and pretend like as if these issues aren't going to affect me, but they absolutely will. Um, they're going to affect me now, even before I have kids and they're going to affect my children and their children and so forth and so on. And so I think that, at the end of the day, you know, JFK once said, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Um, and America has done a lot for me. And to be someone who was the product of um, a, a mother who had him when she was in high school, had no idea how to raise a child, was in no position to raise a child. Um, for me to be able to do what I do every single day and to have the platform that I have to just speak about these issues that are so important to so many people and people actually listen and take me seriously. It's one of those things that I, I can't explain as anything other than the American dream. Want to dive into some political yeah, stuff? Yeah, but I want to ask yeah. about your your mom and, and your grandparents today. Like, yeah. Where do they stand with where you're at right now? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, they're still they're still Democrats. They're still <laughs> uh, liberals and progressives. You had one job. Right, I had one job. I had Nobody's one job. perfect. Nobody's right, perfect. I always joke around <laughs> with people whenever they ask me about them. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the only Republican that they'll ever vote for is me, and I don't even know if that's a lock. So, you know, I'm really hoping for the best, praying for it. But, um, you know, it's interesting. I think that as the 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 modern day democrat party in america has drifted more to the left and has grown more radical um it's kind of opened their eyes a little bit because they're just like this isn't the jfk democrat party that i grew up supporting this isn't um you know the the bill clinton party even this is like people saying you know that white people are inherently evil that you know that black people are inherently victims and that children should be able to undergo gender transition um surgery as as young as you know just being a toddler because they have this feeling that they um may not be the 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 right gender when a few years ago at least when i was growing up which again wasn't that long ago um if a girl acted a little bit like a boy she was a tomboy she wasn't a guy like people weren't trying to you know convert children and i think a lot of these issues that have really cropped up, um, you know, in Americans' political discourse now, I've sort of drifted them a little bit to the right. We're not completely there yet, though. Um, they definitely weren't too big of a fan of, of President Trump, who, of course, I was a supporter of, and and all of those things. And, and I still do get texts. You know, it's so funny. They'll they'll see I'll post a video um, going after the left, as I do every day, and they'll send it to me. They're like, CJ. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> like we'll go back and forth over text, but it's good. You know, I, I really do think that it was so important and I really do take a lot of value in having grown up in the way in which I did because it exposed me to other people's arguments where I feel like oftentimes even people on the right, they grow up in such an echo chamber where they don't really know how to talk to other people. They don't really know how to persuade other people where every single day I had to try to do that. You know, I at least put my best foot forward. I may not have succeeded and, Fortunately, as you can tell by the voter registration, I've not yet, but, um, you know, I, I always made my best effort. And two, I think that if we're actually going to convince people, we have to learn how to actually converse with them first. And that's what it taught me. So it's like when I went to college, I was never really, 
affected by the fact that there were going to be liberals and leftists around me. It's like, it's just a fact of life, um, which I think is just tolerance. I think tolerance goes both ways. Unfortunately, um, the modern day left doesn't have that much in America these days. You can just look at our college campuses for evidence and proof of that. Um, but it's, it, I don't know if I would be as tolerant as I am or as able to just sit down and break bread with other people who disagree with me um, if I hadn't had that upbringing. I have many people who I agree with on many, on many, many issues who can't do that with other people, um, which is unfortunate, but, you know, hasn't been something that's ever affected me. You mentioned that you're a supporter of Trump. Yeah. Uh, do you support, are you supporting him for, for the 2024 run? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's is very there any other candidate you have in mind. Yeah. Well, I think it's very early. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I feel like the U S political cycle, we go from election to election and it's like, it, you know, it used to be two years, but now it's two weeks. And then the next thing you know, you hear about all these people who are, who are trying to run for president, you know, but I think it's, it's hilarious. I, I, I joke about how big the field has gotten. It's like, uh, I think it's almost at 15 to 16 people. It's like, I feel like a lot of people are just starting to run for president as like a remedy to their midlife crisis. It's just like, come on, like buy a boat, like go sailing, go do something, go build a car. Like people, normal people buy Mustangs when they're going through a midlife crisis. People in American politics, they run for president. It's a shame. Um, but I think President Trump obviously did a lot of great things as president. I think that if you look at his record, having the lowest black unemployment rate in our nation's history, um, you know, everything he did in terms of the economy um, was great. I think it's why he's leading, you know, considerably in the polls is because people really do respect the work that he did, but also miss him a little bit. And Joe Biden uh, has done a very good job at reminding people of how good we had it. Um, but also that that didn't just come by accident. Like it was a result of a lot of work, but you know, I think our fuel is great. I, I like Vivek Ramaswamy. He's saying a lot of great things. Really smart guy. Um, I admire a lot. You know, Governor DeSantis has been, you know, great for the people of Florida. He's done a lot of great things there. So why not DeSantis? I think he's I think he's interesting. I think he I think that it's early. We'll we'll have to see um, you know, if his message really um catches fire. Um I think his record's great, but I think that there are a lot of people who are interested in seeing kind of, Trump finished the job. Now, I think the thing in the back of everyone's head really is, is that, you know, obviously he's in a great position to win the primary um, based on every poll that we've seen. But can he win the general? Right. And I think that's where we, people are really wondering and people are really um, kind of still scratching their heads. But I think that uh, I do think that because of how bad Biden has been, if you look at, you know, inflation, if you look at the prices that Americans are paying at the gas pump, if you just look at the state of American culture. There are a lot of people who I think are interested in going in a different direction. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be interesting next few years. I'm, I'm gonna, just for the, for the sake of not, you know, turning this into a, I mean, it's, it's already a bit of an echo chamber, but mm. to, to, to break us out of the echo chamber yeah. a little bit, because we do, it's no, it's no surprise. I think to a lot of our listeners that we share a lot of the same opinions, but yeah. I'll ask you about, you know, do you have any qualms with the way that, January 6th went down and that the way that Trump handled that and the way that he handled the results of the election. 
You know, I think that, you know, in any democracy that, you know, if you can't challenge the results of an election, if you can't contest results of an election, then that's not really a true democracy. And I think that he was um, within his role as someone who was on the ballot. And I think as someone who got as many votes as he did to basically say, hey, there are some irregularities here um, and maybe we should take a look into that and see whether or not, you know, there's Yeah, but you and I know he didn't say it. Like, I mean, that's not the Trump way of saying things, right? Well, yeah, he was a bit more bombastic. (laughs) about it um, as true to character but you know you know no one's gonna sit here and say that January 6 was a it was a good day in American history it certainly was not Um, but I do think that as far as how it began in terms of him saying hey like based on these irregularities that happened in these states and you know some of these things that have come out about this election that you know I want to vocalize I want to be vocal about you know what has happened here I think he was well within his rights to do it and also Democrats have done that, which is kind of the ironic thing that you don't often hear about in the media. You know, I'm from Georgia. Stacey Abrams, she ran for governor in 2018. Um, she was this close to winning um, and she refused to concede the election. And she said that, you know, the election was stolen from her. All of these things using the same rhetoric um, that President Trump used. But it wasn't, a, you know, a calamity then. It wasn't a problem then. And then you have, you know, folks who, you know, like to say that, you know, if you don't accept the results of the 2020 election, your election denier and all these things and whatnot. But you have the current speaker that or current minority leader of the House of Representatives, Hakeem Jeffries, who voted against certifying the election results and also was very supportive of Stacey Abrams refusal to concede when she ran for governor. And so I think that, you know, this is interesting. I think a lot of people in the national media obviously are already very critical of Trump. Just, you know, the man could breathe the wrong way and they want to impeach him for it. And but yeah, so. I don't know. I think I think challenging the results was within his rights. I think that if there is fraud in any election that we should root it out. Uh, I think that the most important thing for the American people to be able to have is confidence in our elections. And if they don't, then it's 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 concerning. It's a dark day uh, for America. It's a dark day for democracy. But I think that more and more Americans are fixated on 2024, right? They're fixated on how do we go from here? They're fixated on inflation. They're fixated on the price they're paying at the pump. They're fixated on the economy. And so I think that does need to be a transition in the message, right? Like we can't just keep talking about the election of 2020. We've got to move on from that. We've got to talk about obviously what happened. There were some, uh, you know, not good things that happened in that election in terms of processes and whatnot. But we got to secure the elections. That's important. But we also have to start talking about the issues that people are fixated about every single day. But what I'm what I'm wondering is, you know, in light of all the progressiveness and the sort of, I guess, the vacuum of morality on the left mm. or what I, I, I would describe as a vacuum of, of values, of traditional values. Do you really think that Trump kind of personifies the, the opposite and it? Like, is his character really something that you think American children should look up to that, you know, this like decadent, like no holds bar, right? Like, yeah, just like, well, I don't think American children should look up to any politician <laughs> is, 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 is my like de facto uh, position on that. But I think that there are things that to admire. But you looked about. up to John, you know, McCain. Uh, yeah, I respected his service. Yes, I think that it was something to admire about him in the same way that I think President Trump has many admirable traits in terms of his tenacity to fight. I think that he is someone who doesn't necessarily seek the um, the the fawning of the political elite and the media, which I think is very important in a place where you're never going to get it. Um, you know, one of my biggest sources of confusion is sometimes watching conservatives and Republicans fight so hard for the media to like them when 
and it's never going to happen. I, you guys probably have that experience here, um, you know, with Prime Minister Netanyahu is that, you know, regardless of how hard he tries, these people will probably never really like him, you know, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much good he does, how much he does, how much good he does for the region and, and so much else, like these people are not going to like him. And what's interesting, I was reading a story about the prime minister recently about when he did his iconic uh, video with the water, uh, you know, uh, taunting um, the the Iranian regime. And there is a an article, I think, in um, Hertz? Haaretz. Ha yeah. And they were saying that, you know, if he keeps this up, you know, it's we're going to be out of a job or whatever. And it's like, but see, these people still find a way to hate him. And it's just like, I think that's where Trump is. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, is he perfect? No, no man is perfect. No politician is perfect. But I think that at the end of the day, when you look at the cultural decay that's happening in America, maybe he's the fighter that we need right now. And I think that, you know, God has a way of using imperfect people to um, rise to the occasion and do the things that need to be done. And I think that when you look at his four years as president, he did that and he did a very good job um, in terms of the economy, in terms of, um, you know, fighting a lot of this cultural decay. But um, yeah. Um, I was telling Eitan just the other day uh, when the rulings of the Supreme Court uh, have been uh, released. Yeah. Which would not have been possible without him. Exactly. Well, I right? was telling so, Eitan yeah. that's Trump's legacy. Yeah. Right? That's his biggest legacy. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful to see how, you know, it, it's been a few years since he stepped down and only now the, the left starts to really understand what, what he did to like within his rights right yeah. i think they oh. understood what was coming that's why you saw that, that's why they want to pack the courts and expand with, it. Yeah. no but with brett kavanaugh you i mean the reaction right. to but there's to, there's theory and there's practice right when it actually hits you yeah, yeah. it's it's something else so first of all yeah. what do you think about the the whole uh, harvard uh quotas how do you call it in english it's yeah, affirmative quote, action yeah, yeah affirmative action, action. Um, what do you think about that? Do you, do well, you yeah, well, agree? I think the policy itself is, is inherently racist. I think the, the idea that, you know, black Americans need, you know, an extra help from the government just to be just as good as white Americans is an inherently bigoted idea. I, I don't need that personally. I, and I don't need, you know, the color of my skin to open any doors for me. You know, I think my work ethic will do that. I think my ambition will do that. I think my drive will do that. Even if it means that in Ivy League, you will see no African-Americans well, eventually? I, well, that's the thing. I don't think that'll be the case. I think that it's actually going to be one of those things where uh, it's going to be kind of a call to higher, um, you know, purpose for a lot of people in the black community. It's like, if you want to be in the Ivy League, if you want to go to Harvard University, you have to work hard as it should be. You know, and the thing is, if unfortunately there are no black people at Harvard University because of these actual standards that are built on merit, then that's a way different conversation that we need to be having as a country and as a community about why we are not sending more African Americans to um, Ivy League universities. But we know it's not only about merit in Ivy League, right? We had there was this huge debacle with the celebrities, right? Who yeah, bought admission? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I thought you were talking about with the test scores. No, also with the test scores, but also yeah, they donated right uh, yeah. money and they got their kids uh, mm, to uh, right. There was this yeah. uh, story. <laughs> yeah, there's um, so many people who like yeah, their their parents will write a two hundred thousand dollar check and build a library and they'll get in, which is you know a totally different you know, discussion, I think legacy admissions need, should probably be looked at as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because I think if we're actually going to be, you know, pro meritocracy, we should be pro meritocracy across the board. But 
again, I, I think this idea that you see from a lot of people on the left right now is that black people are kind of destined to fail in a world absent of affirmative action is actually very flagrantly racist and is, is one of those things that I'm kind of amazed that they're saying out loud um, because, you know, again, uh, pointing to my own story again, like if you look at the statistics associated with most people who have my upbringing who, you know, are born out of wedlock and, you know, raised by their grandparents or whatever else, I'm not supposed to be where I am today. Um, but because of hard work and drive and, and the behaviors that were modeled to me by my grandfather and my and grandparents talent. And, and talent, talent and, and, yeah, and whatever else, stuff right? That, yeah. Freedom. But yeah, and freedom. And, and, and also the incubator that is the, the United States, I've been able to do a lot. And so I think that, at the end of the day, again, and I think you you make a very interesting point is that, you know, if, if, if we get to a point where there is no black person at Harvard University, which I, again, am doubtful that will ever happen. But if, if we do get to that point, then we need to have a cultural conversation about why are we as a community not sending more black people to Ivy Leagues in a merit-based system? Um, how do we create a, a, a culture that actually you know, incentivizes academic success and, you know, and, and exceptionalism, not a culture that glorifies violence and nonsense and all of these things. Right. And so I think that unfortunately we've drifted to that at a point. I don't think that defines our community, but it certainly is something that doesn't help it. But if you polled the black community in the States, it's safe to say most of them would not like this ruling. Right. Yeah. So how do you explain yeah. the gap? Like, how can't they see what you see? Yeah, I think it's 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 a, a product of decades of very very intentional um, gaslighting and indoctrination, you know, by the political left in America. Right? I think it it starts it traces its history back to the '60s with you know Lyndon with LBJ's you know Great Society, where it was really about fostering dependence upon the government um, by members of the black community, um, seeing themselves as unable to almost function without the help of the government, which isn't true at all. We, we did it before. And, and, and I think that we can still do that today. Um, and so I think that unfortunately, we have to really beat back over the course of many years, um, the, the social conditioning that has really taken effect um, in the black community. It, and it goes back to the kind of the earlier conversation I had when I like went to my grandmother and I said, Hey, I voted for this Republican. And she looked at me and she said, Oh, you must think that you're white. It, it, it's that same type of logic because it's type of social condition conditioning that they've always been told that, Hey, you're black. You have to vote Democrat. That same reason. Hey, you're black. You should support food stamps. Hey, you're black. You should support, uh, you know, affirmative action because if you don't, it's coming for you. It's coming for your community. Community. And I think that everyone always feels some type of way when they lose something. Um, any community does. I think if you look at, you know, what happened in America with Roy V. Wade being overturned, um, you know, I, I always tell this story because it's it's an issue that I even I still haven't really wrapped my head around about how we can actually message it and talk about it in America yet. But I have so many friends who are big supporters of President, uh, uh, like, uh, female friends who were big supporters of Donald Trump, wear MAGA hats, all these things. When Roy V. Wade was overturned, you would have thought it was the end of the world. Um, also, a credit to the messaging of the Democrats there. They messaged it as if it was like the end of abortion as, you know, forever in America when that wasn't the ruling. The ruling was that it would be up to, you know, each individual state to obviously decide whether or not they wanted to allow it or what rest restrictions they would place onto it. Um, 
but that is what many girls thought. And so they voted that way in the midterm election. So what was supposed to be a red wave and Republicans were supposed to sweep both chambers of Congress turned out not to be the case. We um, didn't win the Senate and we have like a very narrow, I think, seven seat majority uh, in the House of Representatives. So, um, you know, it's it, we've got to get better at messaging. We've got to get better at actually reaching people where they are, which has been something I've been very intentional about. I think that you can a, a lot of black people are weary of conservatism and weary of Republicans. Actually, I wouldn't say weary of conservatism. I think black people are still very culturally conservative. I think the same way that I was raised, you know, faith, family, God, all those things are still pretty big um, within the black community, especially in the South. But I do think they are weary of Republicans because most of them have never met a Republican, right? Um, and people hate what they don't understand. They hate what they, and they hate people they never met. Um, just like anyone would. And so I think that Republicans actually have to go and do a they better job. They live in the South and they go to college and school with these kids. And- but they live among other black people, right? They, who all vote Democrat, who may you know be conservative in a value system, but there really is this cognitive dissonance, which even me, like sometimes I'm just like, I rack my brain to try to understand. It's like there is a true state of cognitive dissonance within the black community where it's like, they're like, okay, well, I don't like a lot of this, you know, radical LGBTQ stuff, like in terms of the children and all of this stuff and some of the things that they're putting in schools and pornography and whatever else, but I'm still going to vote this way because I've always voted this way. My parents voted this way. My grandparents voted this way. And my response to that often is, is where has that gotten them? Because if you look at the inner cities of America, you look at Chicago, you look at Detroit, you look at all of these places that have been almost single-handedly ruled by progressive policies, progressive politicians over the years, you see poverty, you see crime, you see in places like Chicago where a black kid can't even go out and play on the sidewalk without the threat of a bullet being lodged in their head. And you think that this is something you want to continue to vote for. But they do. And so I, I think that is how deep, like, really we are and into this mess. Like, it's 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 the product of years and years of years of years of years of years of years of being told this is how you're supposed to vote. So close your eyes, put your head in the sand and ignore it. And of course, if you go against the stream. Yeah. You, people come for you. They, they try to cancel you. They what call happened you to uncle. you when like. Yeah, yeah. They, they, what happens to you today? Right. You they get... call you an Uncle Tom. They you know send you death threats. Like I've been doing this since I was twelve years old, so I'm a little bit numb to it now. It doesn't really affect me. It doesn't get to me. Uh, but you know, when I was like a little kid, when I was like thirteen or fourteen years old, there were people like sending me you know death threats. You know, online. It's like, are you really that triggered by what a little kid has to say <laughs> that you're sending them death threats? You know, it was it was ridiculous to me now, and it's even Kids more are dangerous. Man. Right. We're so dangerous, <laughs> um, and it's ridiculous to me now, but. What's interesting now is that, you know, it's the same things. It's just, it's just that you are a, you're a tool of white supremacy. You're a tool of, you know, of, of bigots and all of this stuff. It's like, I don't know if I try to show up to a KKK meeting if they're going to let me in. And I think the reason is obvious why they wouldn't let me in. So for you to sit here on this app on social media, be a keyboard warrior and say that because I disagree with you, because I support conservative policies or values that I am a tool of white supremacy, the white supremacists don't like me, you know, and it's something that I can't change. And so it's just but they like Trump. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they I don't think they like Trump. I think if you look at, you know, what his policies actually were in terms of the black community, 
community, giving a record amount to historically black colleges and universities, you know, being the first president in modern history to actually do criminal justice reform. There is a lot of policies that he did to help black people that the KKK, I guarantee you, is not lining up to support. Um, but what I will say is that the birthplace of white, white supremacy was the Democrat Party, which is a history that unfortunately far too many people in the black community are not aware of. And when I do tell them about it, it's often new news to them, which has always been so interesting to me because it's not taught in our schools today. You know, we have critical race theory, you know, being injected into our schools where you're learning that, you know, somehow, you know, white children are inherently racist and responsible for the sins of their grand grandfathers um, who they weren't even, they weren't even alive for. Like, you're blaming little white kids for slavery when they themselves were not alive to have ever owned slaves and the black kids in the room were not even alive to have been a slave. And it's just silly nonsense. But what you aren't being taught in schools, apparently, for some odd reason, is the fact that the Democrats really founded the KKK. They were the people who were pro Jim Crow. They were the people who were pro putting my great great grandmother in the back of the bus. That is their history. That is their foundation. That is their bedrock. And so, and you know, and then of course, you have the entire argument of oh, the party switch. Well, you know, I would like to believe that. I would like to believe that they saw the light, that they changed their ways, and that they have, you know, truly become enlightened and, you know, repented. But I, I don't see that, especially going back to affirmative action when they perpetuate this argument that if black people don't have affirmative action in a merit-based society, they are destined to fail. That's the same argument that the KKK would make, that regardless of how hard you try to help black people, regardless of how much you do for them, they will never, ever, ever be able to compete or be on the same level playing field as white people because we are inherently inferior. That is the argument that the left is making today in terms of this ruling. And I've got to say, it makes sense when you look at their history. Have you ever experienced racism i mean you grew up in the south you lived there for a while you went to college there in alabama yeah tuscaloosa you know the capital of uh <clears throat> of, of racism um historically historically so not yeah. today yeah, yes no, no no historically um you know the center of the civil rights movement so have you yourself personally ever experienced it has anybody ever said anything to you you know, not often, you know, maybe like there's a few instances of it, but they're so insignificant to me that I can't even really recall them, you know, off the top of my head. I think that for me, um, and you know, this is, I think, I think does racism still exist. Yes, it does. I think that is just a, a matter of fact, but I think the question that exist is like how pervasive is it? I just don't think it is as pervasive as people pretend that it is, especially. I mean, I grew, I grew up, we, we just talked about it on the show. Yeah. I grew up in, in the same areas as you, like I was in Alabama yeah. and went to high school in Atlanta. And I, I mean, in the short time we were in, a, in Atlanta, like four years, I think there were twice. And there were other incidents that I wasn't involved in where like mm -hmm. cars would drive by the synagogues and yeah. throw stuff. And You had stuff thrown at you. Yeah, yeah, like a yogurt. And there was like a, there was like a whole yeah. incident of like eggs getting thrown at people. I, I didn't have one thrown at me, but like where people leaving the synagogues would get. You didn't have anything like similar where... No, I think, and I think it's also like generationally too, right? I think, you know, being in, in Gen Z and, and growing up in a time where people are just kind of a lot more colorblind than they used to be. And, and you know, obviously, historically, for sure, I, I just didn't really experience much of that. And thankfully, right? Um, yeah. But I think that also too, is that when I look at, you know, the reality of racism, 
you know, as I was saying, yeah, does it still exist? Yes. But is this pervasive thing that ever prevented me from achieving what I wanted to achieve or, um, you know, doing what I wanted to do? No. You know, I went to the University of Alabama. I was in a predominantly white fraternity at a predominantly white institution. Um, did I ever felt like I was treated differently because of that? No. Um, but again, that is a result, of course, of the people who worked so very hard to make that a reality um, in our country, which I'm you know, definitely thankful for. And I think that what we unfortunately see, though, um, in America is not racism, you know, aimed towards the minority much anymore. It's not racism aimed towards black people or aimed towards, you know, Mexicans or anything like that or, or, or Latino Americans or whatnot. But it's, it's actually racism that is not really condemned other than by conservatives, but racism is actively encouraged by the powers that be in America, which is against people who are straight, white and male and just white overall. It's like you can say anything you want about white people in America. You can, you know, condemn them. You can you know, target them. And in the case of the Harvard University admissions decision, you can even prevent them from going to college um, because of the color of their skin, which is also uncontrollable as it is for black people and any other color of any person unless you're um, michael jackson right and that's your, <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah like that's the reality so it's just that i think that's the actual racism that i see more so of every single day now is actually racism aimed towards white people because they don't have an ally they don't have you know the media is not fighting their fight you know if someone were to call me the n-word today the new york times actually new york times hates me but someone in the media would probably you know criticize it or condemn it as wrong and, and not okay or you know a black person that they probably do like i'm sure they would defend but you know if you were to say anything any slur any you know type of thing against white people people would probably celebrate it they would say ah oh, you know you're so woke this is so progressive can't be racist towards yeah, the majority yeah you can't be racist towards the majority is the argument that they use you can't be there's a power dynamic you know fallacy yeah. they love to talk about and it. it's just here in israel um there's a big debate about the freedom of speech mm-hmm. and the, the idea of freedom of speech is not really implemented in in Israeli democracy like it is in America mm-hmm. and always Israelis go like there's a, a red line right yeah. beyond which stuff cannot be tolerated yeah. right um, but so, the, to that point I'm curious so yeah. I, when I was driving actually back from uh, Masada back into Tel Aviv uh-huh. we came across the the protests and the bridges Okay. Yes. So, so how is is that protected speech here? Like, how does that yeah. work? Yes. Yeah. It's just demonstration. Uh, depends because mm-hmm. some of those demonstrations are illegal. Okay. Are illegal. Also, they some of them block the roads. Yeah. I don't know if you heard about. But not it. the act of speech itself is illegal. No. I mean, the they speech, can say no. whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. Could they though? I don't know. You cannot say, you know, kill X Y Z right or yeah i think the the like there's a couple of there's a couple of um of like planes on which like israeli speech is more limited one is incitement Mm -hmm. to violence yeah uh, two is even like the like calling against the, the the government like Hamrada like uh, re- yeah. rebelling uh, calling for rebellion mm-hmm. and stuff like that but also that. defamation is much more I think flexible here yeah. like you mm-hmm. can sue anybody for any kind of level of defamation yeah. like wow. if they say so there's no like, public figure protection or like higher standard here that's a good question I don't know if there's a public figure protection what do you mean protection? Like protection. The, yeah. the, if you're the, a public figure. A member of Knesset has immunity. 
a guy. So member of Knesset can say almost anything yeah. and they, he cannot be sued, but that's only yeah, 120 yeah, people. people. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about the KKK. But there's the also extreme. a limitation on, let's say, calling someone a Nazi, right? I think specifically You can around... sue slander on that. Yeah. You can yeah. sue for slander. No, but isn't there a law specifically around the world? The no, I don't think so. Nazis? No, that's in Germany. Okay. In Germany. Not in Israel as well. But I was wondering, um, like... As a as a as a Republican, I guess freedom of speech is a big uh, yeah. value for you. So, to answer all those Israelis who can't believe that you know you're gonna fight for the right of haters yeah. to say their mind, so how do you how do you see that? Would you like do you support the KKK's freedom of speech? Yeah, I do, and I and I and I also support the people um, who who speak out against them. You know, as I do, and I think. I think hate speech is free speech. I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, obviously because I, because I also think that speech doesn't inoculate you. Free speech doesn't inoculate you from the consequences of your speech, right? Like if you're a member of the KKK and you're going around and, you know, projecting those beliefs out into the world, like there are going to be consequences for those actions. Like, you know, whether or not it's, uh, you know, it, like enforced by society, by people who don't want to be friendly with you or people who don't want to associate with you or whether or not it's enforced by, you know, corporations and private entities who don't want to employ you because of your views, which I think is also their prerogative. And so I think I think that like there are so many safeguards and checks and balances to that sort of thing that like, why not let them say what they want to say? Like, who is that really affecting? Like I like if someone were to call me the N word, I wouldn't be personally affected by it all that much. I would be angry about it um, in the moment, but I wouldn't necessarily think, oh, they should be jailed for that, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there are so many other consequences that they would likely face for making that decision to do that, right? Um, so I think that in, in our day and age, like there's so many ways to enforce it. And But I think the thing is like, it's weird because hate speech has become such a huge umbrella that it's almost become like for some people on the left, like anything that they don't like is hate speech, right? Like if I say there are two genders and I'm being, I mean, I'm, I'm using hate speech where no, I'm simply using a biology book, but um, to some of them that would be classified as hate speech. And so I think that's also another reason to say that hate speech is free speech, because I think we've gotten to such a soft snowflake like society that we have drifted to a point where even speaking the truth is hate speech. And so if I were to say, no, hate speech is a, you know, is, is a bit too far. It crosses the line. What crosses the line today or doesn't cross the line today may cross it tomorrow. And there you go. I've sold myself out. And, you know, and I, and I just I just don't think that it's such a slippery slope. It's it's such a incredibly slippery slope. So you're going to run for politics? <laughs> Sounds like I don't, it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm super I'm super young right now. You know, I'm definitely, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to to do a lot of fun things uh and just really advocate you know for my generation which has been you know super important to me and ensure that they have a seat at the table um so that's been my focus and i look forward to seeing where that all takes me and uh, i'm excited to see where it goes wow that was a politician's answer there's a joke in hebrew there's this saying i'm not dealing with this at the moment right <laughs> when, when a politician is asked are you going to run and he said i'm not dealing yeah. with this question at the moment <laughs> then usually it means he's dealing with he's only thinking about this question all day long <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> 
So you you spoke about your grandfather, I think, serving in the military. Yeah. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about? Yeah. So I actually thought about going like to the like a service academy, but yeah. I have asthma, so it's an automatic disqualification, mm. fortunately. Um, but in the U.S., like it's not so prevalent, right? I mean, asthma. Or, no, uh, serving in the military, I think it's not. Well, right now they actually have some. They have a really hard time recruiting um, right now, which is. Um, a problem, you know, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely strategic problem. Yeah, it's definitely reference. a strategic problem that we have to get very serious in figuring out. And so, um, it, I, and I don't know what the remedy to it is. I think that at the end of the day, um, it's going to have to be like a resurgence of, of patriotism and unity. You can do it the Putin way, right? You go to all the prisons and jails, right? And go, well, I'll yeah. give you, I'll pardon you if you join the military. Like that may have to happen one day. Like at this point, like there, there's just so many people my age who are just not interested in fighting, and and and, and it's just it's such a complicated issue because it's like I, you know, for me when I look at when I look at foreign policy, I think that America has gotten a lot of trouble in the past with fighting very dumb wars, and I wouldn't be very eager to fight in those wars either. Um, but at the same time, I think there is no higher honor than fighting for your country. Um, which is something I respect so much about Israel that they, you know, that people have to go and serve and they have to go, um, you know, fight for their fellow man and serve alongside their fellow man. Um, I think that's an incredibly beautiful thing. Um, but there's also, I feel like so much more patriotism here. Like you guys like really like you guys love your country a lot, you know? And I, and I think there are lots of Americans who love their country. Um, but I think it's a lot more self before country these days. And I no, don't know I if that's think, generational, but you know, I think even on the left, we just had, um, before you, you arrived, we had a guest from Haaretz newspaper, Haaretz newspaper, left wing. Yeah. And he is like, if you put him next to a progressive left wing American, the yeah. progressive left wing American, the average progressive left wing American hates America. Yeah. Thinks America is the, the devil. great devil. Yeah, like they see it almost like an Iranian sees yeah. America. That's what's crazy. It's that, and then when you hear them talk about America, it's almost like you're living in a different world. And so I'll hear them describing the America that we live in. You know, this imperialistic, racist nation that is oppressive every single day. And I'm just like, well, not the America I live in. And it's just. And it's and it's hard because, like I said, you know, I, I am totally fine with having conversations with people who disagree with me every single day. I, I enjoy it. I think it's 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 uh, invigorating to us to to a point. But I think at the same time, though, it's just like there has to be some type of common ground or common frame of reference to a sense. And when you're saying all these things about America, which I've never experienced, which I know a lot of people who are like me, who come from a similar background, also have an experience. I just don't even know how to refute what you're saying because it doesn't really exist. Right. And so, um, but yeah, I think that's something that we, we should take some inspiration from you guys. And is that like, you know, you can disagree about America. You can disagree with the person who's in the white house. Um, but you shouldn't, you should still, that shouldn't affect your love of country. Right. It shouldn't affect, um, your patriotism, which I think, again, we need to have a renaissance of American patriotism because it's certainly, um, it's certainly on the dip. It's a shame. Amazing. Um, so you're here until Friday. Yeah, here yeah. until Friday. And uh, so a lot to see yet. A lot to see. So I think we're going ATV riding through the desert tomorrow, which I'm super wow. excited about. <laughs> rode a camel the other day. I've never ridden a horse, but somehow I found a way to ride a camel before I rode a horse. <laughs> uh, so that's super fun. Dead Sea was great. It was so sick. Um, and then... 
Um, but again, the like food. Going, oh, the food's been so. Good. I've never had shawarma. That was oh, super good. I was, I was hungry, man. Right. I was I was surprised. I'm like low-key kind of a picky eater. Like I'm not like I'm not the type of guy that looks at a menu and goes out of his way to try new things. And so like being here has definitely been an experience. And you guys don't have any bacon at breakfast. Um right? Well, there's places. There's places. There's places. Yeah, yeah, not but, where I've been. But no that's not yeah, if you're next to the Dead Sea. Right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. That's actually a painful point. Painful right. Point, yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> especially for this guy, yeah, yeah. Right. smuggles it in every yeah. time he. <laughs> no, uh, no, you can buy it some places, but yeah, it's it's it. very scarce. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been that's been a little bit of a difference, a little culture shock there, but now shawarma has been good. Also, don't get the him bread? started on blueberry pancakes. It's. Uh, is that um, not is is, is that uh, like a pancakes thing? are like a it's like a scarce commodity here and so not... I had some pancakes the other I went to the light lighthouse restaurant the uh, it's like a breakfast place and uh, a yeah. brown hotel and they're little they're, they're no like flapjacks yeah, like they, try and they make it yeah. fancy same yeah. with burgers here they don't yeah. like rare uh, the places that they just have a good classic burger yeah or like a smash burger yeah you guys need an in and out you guys need an in and out oh yeah a kosher in and out yeah no it, it doesn't have to be kosher <laughs> it's okay no, 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 no. in tel aviv yeah. there's like hardly kosher yeah. restaurants no one cares about it but CJ, thank you so much for joining. It sounds like yeah. you have a super bright future. I can't yeah. wait until we say we've interviewed the uh, the, the president yeah. of the United States <laughs> yeah. in 20 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. 20 may be a little early, 25. 25, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if we'll be still yeah. around. We're so fucking old. <laughs> Y'all are thriving. Y'all are living y'all's best lives around here. But <laughs> yeah. no, thank but you thank so you. much for having me. I and what can that. we plug? You're everywhere, yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. CJ so guys, Pearson. Yeah, you guys can follow me at uh, the CJ Pearson. You can check us out at PragerU.com and keep up with our content there. And uh, yeah, I'll see you there. And Fox News. And Fox News. Thank you so thank much you. for coming, thank man. Really appreciate listening. it. Enjoy your trip. Thank here. you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.